Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it should be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. The word of the Lord. You know, we seem to be living in a time of such great upheaval in our day that many have started to attempt to take a look at some of the factors that seem to be contributing to that upheaval. Uh, recently, David Brooks said this in an article that he provocatively entitled, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. He says this. He says, if you want to summarize the changes in family structure over the past century, the truest thing to say is this. We've made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. We've made life better for adults, but worse for children. We've moved from big, interconnected, and extended families, which help protect the most vulnerable in society from the shocks of life, to smaller, detached, nuclear families, a married couple and their children, which give only the most privileged people in society room to maximize their talents and expand their options. Brooks goes on to talk in this article about how much this, this atomization, as it were, of connected families uh, has hurt our desire, our inner need to be connected. He goes on to say this. He says, all forms of inequality are cruel, but family inequality just might be the cruelest because it damages the heart, he says. I often ask my African friends who have immigrated to America what most struck them when they arrive. Their answer is always a variation on a theme, the loneliness. Now look, David Brooks is a professing Christian, so I know where he got ideas like this. My question is, why do articles like that get traction even among sort of the, the secular elites in our world? Well, I think that the Christian answer to that question lies in a fundamental fact about human nature that every Christian professes. And that is that mankind is created in the image of a God who is himself a tri-unity, a trinity. That is, he is Three persons and one essence, the theologians say. And for that reason, there is a void in man's self-knowledge unless he pursues that self-knowledge in a deep fellowship with other human beings. This bears repeating. Like, What if God's whole purpose in creating humanity was not to create a bunch of non-connected bundle of autonomous individuals who thankfully go to heaven on their own when they die and get their cloud and their harp. But what if God was creating a collective, a people, a group, and that history itself will culminate in this final establishment of the people of God living out life together? In other words, what if the reason why we have this instinct to form friends is because it's encoded on our personality from the very beginning? 
further, what if this individualistic society that we've created in America here at the early parts of the 21st century has been an exercise in moving away from God's intention for God's people to be together? We have, as Brooks says, damaged hearts. Why? Because we've counteracted the manufacturer's design. Look, we started a little three-week series that we began last week going through the mission of Christ Presbyterian Church in Oxford. And we talked a little bit about the difference between a mission and a vision for my friend Brian Habig. And a vision, we said, is this idea of something that we want to see that's not true yet. Well, if you want to get a glimpse of that, you need look no further than Psalm 87. If you want to see a vision of what we long to see happen in this community, you've got it in this song that the psalmist sings in Psalm 87. And it comes to us in three stanzas. First, he says the Lord loves his people. Second, he says the Lord loves his enemies. And thirdly, he says the Lord loves his creation. Let's unpack this psalm in those three headings. Number one, the Lord loves his people. Look, the first interpretive clue you've heard me mention before is that whenever you look in the Old Testament and you see the word Zion, that's actually talking about a corporate people. Remember, there's this little rising hill in the center of Jerusalem that housed the great temple, the location of the presence of God. So when all of the, the Jewish people would come together for worship, they would talk about Zion as this place where God would meet them. So it becomes synonymous with the people of God as they gather for worship. Okay, now I hope you can see where the emotion in the psalm is now. Because it opens up with this great line, God loves the gates of Zion more than all other dwelling places. In other words, the psalm is saying that God loves to be among his people more than any other place that he loves to be. Which, let's face it, is a little weird to talk about God, right? I thought God was everywhere. I thought he was omnipresent, we say. Yes. What does it mean, though, that he loves to be among his people more? Answer, I have no idea. But I want to take the psalm at face value and say that there is something that God derives. There is a unique pleasure that he derives from being in the midst of God's gathered people that is distinct from when we are alone before him. He loves this, <laughs> is what we're saying. And so I think we're immediately faced with this very countercultural truth because God's people are more precious to him when they gather than when they are alone. And I realize this flies very much in the face of American individualism. And not only that, American Christianity for that matter. You know, we live in a day where religion is very much of a personal issue. And you're encouraged to follow what? The God of your own understanding. But here, in American Christianity, we are so fixated on your personal experience. In the South particularly, you know, Christianity is sort of thought to be spending a lot of your personal energy on your personal relationship with Jesus, on your individual experience of God's Spirit. But what I'm trying to suggest to you that the Psalm 87 is giving us is that the Bible's preoccupation is with us as we gather there is an unavoidable corporate dimension, can I say, to our Christian experience, at least if you're going to follow the Bible's direction. In other words, the Bible, is there's just as much biblical instruction about how you behave in community than what goes on in your private life. Just as much. 
The Bible's not unconcerned with your private life, of course. But, 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 in, the, but in, in the forward face of Christianity, it's always public and communal rather than being individualized and private. So here's the question. <laughs> How much of your spiritual energy is expended working through my own inward sense of personal piety versus what it means to live as a healthy member of a body? How much time have you spent thinking through how to love your Christian brother and sister in Christ versus how much you've worried about whether or not you're faithful in your daily exercise of Bible reading? Look, reading God's Word on a regular basis is vital to God's people. But compare that energy you spend worrying about one or the other, and I'll bet you that it's out of balance. There is a corporate dimension to this. And before we leave this, I want you to grasp, though, this really fundamental principle. Because it says here that Yahweh has set his foundation, that he loves the gates of, that glorious things are said of you. In other words, the psalmist could hardly be more emphatic that God's home, his dwelling place, is a place of affection. It's a place of warmth. It's just like a home. That's the reason why you get God talking about sentimental passages like Zephaniah 3.17, one of my favorite verses to quote in the Bible. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. There is nothing that the psalmist delights in more than the knowledge that he is delighted in. Over and over again, he keeps the inspiration for his psalms are the steadfast love of the Lord, his hesed in Hebrew. What does that mean? It means that as we gather as a body of Christians, we are those who connect with one another in a sort of a, oh, you found out too? <laughs> you discovered that Jesus loves messed up people just like me too? That is the core of our corporate identity. That's why we are drawn together. Now, I realize some of us are saying to them, yourself at this point, okay, so God loves me. Yeah. Who doesn't know that? And it leads to sort of a second question, which is, why doesn't it grip me in the way in which it did the psalmist that God actually has that kind of affection for us? Well, my next point may actually provide an answer. The Lord not only, number one, loves his people, but my second point is, is that the Lord loves his enemies. Look, this is an eye-popping truth in this psalm. Go back and look at it, because did you see this list of nations that God was going to count as if they were born in Zion, as if they have an actual heritage in Zion? Let's go down this list. Number one is Rahab. Rahab was a synonym for Egypt. Egypt was the captor of Israel, uh, one of the most powerful, cruel nations of its time. Babylon. Babylon is a synonym in the Bible for every kind of worldliness. It was known for its debauchery. Philistia? The Philistines? Are you kidding me? This is the troublers of Israel, her constant enemy and troubler. Tyre was a very rich city of trading that was known the world over for its wealth and for its greed. So much so that the whole city was known for its covetousness. Finally, poor Cush, the poverty-stricken land thought to be rejected by God because of their ignorance and their lack of education. <laughs> and these, these are the people that God is going to say, I will give them the heritage as if they were born in Zion. 
The psalmist says that when it's all said and done, God is going to fashion a group of people that are made up of the people you presently despise. If you're a little bit like me saying this morning, we just want to make sure that on your way out this morning that you welcome uh, some of the members of, of Antifa that have joined us for church this morning. Or, you know, make sure that you shake the hands of the white nationalists that we brought into our service this morning, depending on your political persuasion this morning. In other words, God's people are made up of the people that we despise the most. This is an offensive psalm. So I want to consider it for a second both vertically and horizontally. Look at the vertical dimension first. It means that God's people contain his former enemies. You've got to wrap your mind around this. Is it possible that one of the reasons why the pronouncement of Jesus' love means so very little to us is because we're not aware of the fact that prior to his announcement of love was a very sure declaration of our doom. Sadly, for many, their, their coming to Christ was nothing more than a glorified, mild reformation plan. You know, I think it's probably best if we just raise the children in church. So we ought to go back. Or maybe, man, I, I just really need to get my life together. It's time for us to go back to church. Is that what coming to Christ was? It always reminds me of one of my favorite illustrations. You've heard it a couple times already. About what you would do if someone came to you and told you that they had just paid one of your debts. But you don't know which debt. They could have paid back the $5 that you owed your friend. They also could have paid back your house note. Do you recognize that the size of transformational joy that you experience upon hearing the announcement of a debt being canceled is directly proportional to the size of the debt. Small debt, little transformational joy. Big debt, massive, life-shattering, earth-changing joy. For much of American Christianity, I'm afraid that a lot of what we call faith is just a glorified sentimentalism. But that's a vertical sort of aspect. But there's a horizontal dimension it's, you know, if you actually took those nations that he mentioned and sort of plotted them out on a map, they would fall to the north, south, east, and west, and way beyond Jerusalem. What's the psalmist saying? He's talking about the whole known world. Jerusalem, the gathered people of God, are going to go out into all the world with the blessing of God on their tongues. Which is so easy to miss this, but it is the central thrust of the entire Bible's teaching. For God to bring together a worldwide global healing. We mentioned last week from Ezekiel 47, the vision that Ezekiel saw of this great river that's flowing out of the temple that transforms everything around it. Well, Christ prays, we are that river. We are Ezekiel's river to flow out into the world, to bring life where there is deadness, to feed the hungry. To, to give company to the imprisoned, to bring love for the unlovely. We are that river. Think of it this way. When mankind fell into sin, there was this extraordinary experience of disintegration. But when, now that Jesus has come, he has now promoted a project that is bringing integration, union, oneness. He's fixing what's broken through micro-communities around the world that he calls the church. You're sitting in one right now. 
This is the place from which God wants to do this. Now, most of the time, when we think about changing our culture, we think about our families, don't we? And there's a sense in which that's true, that we talk about good Christian family values. And those have their place. But families are a micro version of this. But they're not the whole story. What I want you to get this morning is is that it is sub-Christian for us to lack a vision for a multinational, multiracial people of God that is spoken of in every page of the book of Revelation as what we are all heading to. Look, I realize that this summer saw us as a people having to face, I don't know, a lot of harsh realities in the world around us. And my guess is that the most privileged among us probably just wished that the discomfort of those conversations would just go away. But to the degree that we let the issue of the reunification of all things, including and especially the community that should exist in biracial Christian communities in the South, among our African-American brothers and sisters, to the degree that that falls to the wayside, we are sub-Christian. And if you hear me advancing a political realm, you're not listening because it is room enough in the body of Christ to pursue that goal in different ways. But we cannot say that it's not a conversation because the whole movement of history is bringing us into this multinational, multiracial people of God. When I don't care about that, I'm at odds with God's movement in history. Why? Because the Lord loves his former enemies. The Lord loves his people. He loves his enemies. And thirdly and finally, the Lord loves his creation. Look at verse 5. This is an this important thing to unpack here. There is a Greek translation of the Old Testament that we call the Septuagint. In that translation, the word mother is inserted in the first half of verse 5. So that if you look at translations like the New English Bible, it reads this. And Zion shall be called a mother in whom men of every race are born. This is very interesting. Christians throughout the ages have learned to call the church their mother for that very reason. Paul in Galatians 4.26 probably had this translation in mind when he said that the Jerusalem above, the spiritual church that exists at the right hand of God the Father, she is our mother. Early church father, Cyprian, was the one who was quoted as saying, you cannot have God as your father if you do not have the church as your mother. Look, don't miss this. The earliest Christians were very adamant about the fact that you really could not call yourself a faithful Christian without being a baptized member of an actual body of Christ. That is absolutely evident in church history. And I realize that we hate to hear that in our very individualistic society. But is it possible that some of my spiritual struggles are due to the fact that I've really detached myself from an actual body of living people? You know, we seek help. We seek seek meaning. We look for help in times of trouble. Maybe even you seek Jesus. But this morning, my question to you is, what if you've been looking for him in a place where he did not say he would be found? Because this is where he said he would be. He loves the gates of Zion. It's one of my, there's a question about where God can be found. It reminds me of an old joke. It's not a particularly funny joke. But there was a guy who was being told about a flood that was coming. 
And a truck pulled up to him and said, hey, get on the flood and save yourself. He said, no, I'm believing in the Lord's faithfulness to save me. As the waters rise, he climbs up on his roof and a boat comes along and says, hey, jump in and save yourself. And the man says, no, I'm trusting in the Lord to save me. Finally, as the waters come up to his chest and threaten to sort of sweep him away, a helicopter comes up above and says, hey, grab the rope and save yourself. And the man says, no, with his dying gasp, I'm trusting in the Lord to save me. Well, as he walks up into the gates of heaven in front of St. Peter, he looks at St. Peter and is like, what? Did you see what just happened? Didn't you understand what I was doing down there? And Peter looked at him and said, look, we sent you a truck and a boat and a helicopter. What, what exactly were you waiting for? I warned you that it wouldn't be that funny. No one, no one even snickered at that. <laughs> at least I warned you, right? What's the point? If my faith is not connected to the reality of actual other people, then what have I missed? Let me, let me try it on this way. Look, look, at, uh, look at verse 7. The way this psalm ends is actually quite fascinating, textually speaking. He says, all my springs are in you. A spring would be a fountain of life from the inside. Here's my question, though. What is the antecedent to the pronoun you? You realize there's two ways to read it. He could be saying, all my springs are in you, O God. That's what the psalm is about. You can hear it talk, being talked about and the joy that he takes in God. But you realize that the text reads just as fine if it says, all my springs are in you, O people of God. So much so that I've made it a little hobby of mine to think about that conversation I plan on having with the sons of Korah for as often as I've looked at this text to ask them a question. Hey, sons of Korah, that little line at the end of Psalm 87 that you wrote, it says all my springs are in you. Did you mean that all our springs are in God or that all our springs are in the people of God as they gather? And I now fully expect them to look at me and say, what's the difference? You see, God has said, I will most tangibly manifest myself in my people. So those sit souls sitting next to you are not superfluous. They are not optional. Look, the spiritual lives are incarnated in real people. God has not quarantined his presence. It exists in other people to serve, to love, to struggle with, to be on committees with, to go to family suppers with, to, to gather for weekly worship with. You get the point. Hey, so what does that mean? It means that the mission of Christ Presbyterian Church is to be hard at work on this body. It means we're going to be working together to figure out how I can get less peevish and prickly when someone confronts me on something I need to be confronted on. It means that I'm going to spend at least equal amounts of spiritual efforts at forgiving my brother who wronged me as I am going to work on making sure that I'm reading my Bible. It means that I'm going to devote my energy of my imagination to breaking down the walls of division that exist between me and my African-American neighbor in this community of Oxford Lafayette County. It means that I'm going to investigate what hospitality looks like for me and my family and if we can build a home that's not just for us. My oldest daughter introduced me to a young lady by the name of Elena Osborne, who is a young 20-something New Zealander who was as shocked as anyone to find out that the uh, YouTube post that she had put up earlier uh, that last year had reached 200,000 views. 
You see, she had recorded much of her trek from Mexico to Canada along what is known as the Pacific Coast Trail, Pacific Crest Trail. And the sort of a compilation of her adventures were just this beautiful and sometimes heartbreaking journey uh, that took place over 137 days, hiking almost 2,700 miles. But as she goes on in the video to describe what it was that left the biggest impression on her, you know what it was? It was the trail community. In an interview with Wilderness Magazine, she says, people are what color the trail. And without them, it's just another nature walk. Going back through it all, I was tearing up and I was making the cuts and thinking, I really do miss this. I miss these people. For that reason, she named the film after an expression that she learned from the native people of her home, New Zealand, the Maori. They have a proverb that reads this, what is the most important thing in the world? Hey Tangata, hey Tangata, hey Tangata, which translated means it is the people, it is the people, it is the people. Hey, look, every Christian, I think, senses the depth of that proverb because the church is the community of the faithful and the heartbeat of what we're doing here. And at Christ Pres, we say that we are here not just proclaiming a hope, but we are building a home because that's what the church is and seeing God put together what is broken in all of the broken pieces of our lives. And my question for you this morning is simply this. Are you interested in that? Well, come join us, because that's what we're going to be about here. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you grant us the grace to be able to see just that? Father, we thought that these were just casual friendships sitting next to us on the pew, but now we find that in the eyes of those other people who discovered that you loved them too, despite their enemy status prior to, create a bond. We're bonded together. We can hug the necks of every soul in this room who's discovered that because you've worked in us by your spirit. So, Father, would you help us? Would you help us in building this home? Because as glorious a view as we've seen of it in Psalm 87, it is hard. And people can drive us crazy. And it makes us want to isolate and pull back. Father, don't let us be known as that. Help us to be known as those who engage, who forgive, who are long-suffering, who are gentle, who are gracious so that we might be a light in this divided community. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.